Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratrude. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome back to the Family Beacon Podcast. My name is Grace Evans and I'm here with Moses Bratchard. Today we are back at it with another really packed episode. So let me quickly break down um, the stories for you that we will be covering. First, Moses will explain how Governor Youngkin of Virginia has encouraged Republicans to embrace a 15-week ban on abortion, transforming Virginia into a national litmus test that is likely to shape the 2024 elections. We will also briefly discuss how Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips is launching a long-shot bid to challenge President Biden for the Democratic nomination for president. I will also share how our attorney general has joined other states in suing Meta for targeting youth and deliberately making their apps addictive for children. Finally, our main story, of course, we will break down how Mike Johnson uh, has become the new House Speaker and how that is actually a major win for our cause. All that and more on the Family Beacon podcast this week. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Moses, break down the story on a Governor Youngkin of Virginia. So when Governor Youngkin won uh, his race for Governor of Virginia a few years ago, Grace, it was big news. Um, it was big news because Virginia had had Democratic governors for quite a long time. Reminds me of Minnesota. And uh, it was seen as kind of a state that was just trending bluer and bluer. As more and more people moved in the, into the uh, suburbs of Washington, D.C. that are in Virginia, uh, tied with population losses in the more redder version of the more redder parts of the state. But uh, Governor Youngkin or uh, Glenn Youngkin uh, turned that around. He won this election and he has been a really popular governor in Virginia and a really successful governor. And people have been talking about him on the national stage. Mm -hmm. So what he's doing now is advancing a 15-week abortion limit. And he's betting that that this is going to be a winning policy in Virginia and beyond. Now, we've heard Republicans on the national level talk about a 15-week ban. Um, now, I should be clear: the uh, in in Virginia and elsewhere, they would like to they would like us not to call it a ban. They're trying to use uh, the word "limit" or other similar uh, language. I don't necessarily care too much about that. Uh, the point is that abortion would be limited after 15 weeks uh, substantially, and uh, this is this is a big deal. So I'm reading here from the Washington Post. Um, if successful, Youngkin's reputation inside the party will rise, offering a model for the party's presidential and Senate candidates who have been scrambling for a winning message on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right last year, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So Virginia's November 7th elections for all 140 seats in the General Assembly are the only major races in the country this year and could signal the national political mood heading into next year's presidential and congressional contests. Youngkin is raising record amounts of money in a push to keep GOP control of the House of Delegates delegates, and flip the Democratic-controlled Virginia Senate. Um, so the at the root of Youngkin's abortion strategy is the idea that a 15-week limit on the procedure with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the pregnant mother, I refuse to say pregnant person, which is what the Washington Post does, that's an incredible lapse <laughs> in journalism, uh, can be sold to voters as a reasonable and common-sense limit. 
here's the truth. There's no ban claims a $1.4 million ad blitz paid for by Yunkin's Spirit of Virginia group promoting the policy. So um, the the backdrop to this is, as we've discussed in this podcast and as viewers and listeners have seen, Republicans are, some of them at least, many of them are running away from the abortion issue. They think that they will lose on this issue. Governor Yunkin is running in the opposite direction. He is spending millions of dollars to promote candidates and to promote a policy that would actually make Virginia is currently the only Southern state that has no abortion limits. So this would be a huge change for Virginia to then to have a 15 week ban on the books. And the fact is, Grace, as we have discussed, when you ask voters, almost all voters, at least 70 percent nationally and in most states, support bans on late-term abortions, which is what this would be. Um, if this, uh, this, this is a big, this could be really big because as we also know, Democrats in most states, almost every Democrat has absolutely refused to support any, uh, any bans on abortion at all, any limitations on abortion at all. Some Democrats, like in Ohio right now, they will say that they support the Roe standard, which is, uh, which they define as viability, 24 weeks. So no abortions after the point of viability. That's, you know, if you're, if you're supporting a limit on abortion, I'll give you a, 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 a tiny little piece of credit. The fact is that, um, that that's not enough. We need to protect lives. Uh, and 15 weeks, you know, frankly, is a stepping stone. But it's a step in the right direction, right, Grace? Um, mm -hmm. Almost all Democrats and even many Republicans right now are rep refusing to put their money and their reputation on the line for the cause of life. Governor Yunkin is doing that. We should applaud that. We should watch this closely, see what happens. What do you think? Yeah, Moses, we'll take any win that we can get. But here at Minnesota Family Council, we will never stop fighting until every mother and every child is protected from the atrocity of abortion. You know, we're in it to win it. And that's the bottom line on this. Thanks for breaking down that story. Let's turn to Dean Phillips. Um, why is it significant that he's challenging President Biden? Yeah, so this has not been formally announced as we uh, as we film this podcast on October 26th, but I think it's expected to happen tomorrow. Um, and uh, the Vote for Dean campaign bus was spotted on the highway heading from Minnesota to New Hampshire, uh, making it clear that he is, in fact, running for president. So uh, why is this significant? Well, uh, U.S. Representative Dean Phillips of um, uh, the western suburbs of the Twin Cities he is the only elected Democrat challenging President Biden. Um, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, he was challenging uh, Joe Biden, but he is not an elected official and he is now running as an independent. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really significant to have an elected member of your own party challenging an incumbent president. For example, in 2016, that did not happen for Donald, or in 2020 rather, Donald Trump was not challenged by any elected Republicans. So this is a sign uh, Grace, that people see uh, Joe Biden as a weak candidate. We know this. We also know that people are not excited about Kamala Harris as a candidate uh, should anything happen to Joe Biden. And, you know, some Democratic strategists, strategists especially earlier this year, uh, they were really talking about California Governor Gavin Newsom, Illinois Governor Jay Pritzker as possible candidates who could sort of parachute into the primary if something were to happen to uh, Joe Biden. 
And, and, and of course, that could still happen. Anything could happen up until the Democratic convention um, uh, in terms of which candidates, which, which candidate will be on the ballot. But as it, ha- as it is right now, there is no credible challenge to Joe Biden's nomination, except possibly Dean Phillips, if you believe, if you like long shots. So will the Phillips campaign go anywhere? Probably not. I will keep you posted. But what, what we do see here is indication. And, and some people will see this as an example of Dean Phillips's egoism. Uh, Grace, you pointed out that uh, Democrats within here in Minnesota have called on Phillips to resign uh, because he's mm-hmm. not standing uh, with President Biden. And, you know, that they, they like to they really like to f- close ranks. And, and uh, Dean Phillips has been open about criticizing Biden as a candidate. And that is uh, it's also interesting because both Biden and Phillips on paper come from the so-called moderate wing of the Democratic Party. But Phillips sees what many Republicans see, which is that Biden is a weak candidate. Uh, we talked last week about how Biden is only two points ahead of Trump in Minnesota, mm-hmm. which has not voted for a Republican since 1972. That's really ominous, you know, if you if you read the political tea leaves this early in the election cycle. So we'll pay attention to Dean Phillips. Is he going to get any traction? Are there going to be other Democrats entering the race? Is it possible that a candidate other than Joe Biden will be on the ballot next fall? We will find out. Now, speaking of Democrats, uh, our Attorney General Keith Ellison is uh, is not one of our favorite people. Uh, I think <laughs> that's, that's right. safe to say. Uh, he has consistently throughout his career embraced positions that are against life, against the family, um, and uh, you know he's just he's just in a lot of ways um, the sort of person that is. Uh, that we don't want to see in politics. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't advocate for the the life and flourishing of the people that he represents, in my view. But we want to give credit where credit is due. This lawsuit that Attorney General Ellison has joined, along with forty one other states, seems to me like a good thing. Grace, uh, tell us more about that. Give us the inside story about this new lawsuit uh, against Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, so he's actually, our attorney general is actually joining 41 other state attorney generals in, you know, accusing uh, Facebook and Instagram, you know, which are the, um, you know, joint with Meta. He's he's accusing them of deliberately making its apps uh, addictive for children. And um, he's doing that, you know, along with the other attorney generals. And he says that he is joining these attorney generals to, uh, quote, hold the company accountable um, for the part that the country has played in aggravating the national mental health crisis. And uh, kind of in response to being, you know, sued by these attorney generals, Meta said in a statement to New York Times, they said, quote, We're disappointed that instead of working productively with companies across the industry to create clear age-appropriate standards for many apps teens use, the attorney generals have chosen this path. Now, what I think is really interesting and kind of hilarious about this statement from Meta is that they're not, they're kind of just like creating this red herring and they're not actually responding to the actual problem posed by the attorney generals. Again, the attorney generals are, uh, are are accusing Facebook and Instagram of making their apps addictive for children. Now, in that statement I just read to you, they said that they're disappointed that they can't work alongside other states to make age-appropriate standards for teens. Can I just say, that's so dumb. I know. That's so (laughs) dumb, Grace. Like, Mm -hmm. for Meta to absolutely pretend, to Mm -hmm. lie through their teeth, and say that they are 
interested in working productively with mm-hmm. legislators and lawmakers and and the enforcers of the law, like attorneys general. They, how long has Meta been around? How long have Facebook and Instagram been clearly targeting young people with addictive technologies? And you're going to talk more about this, but it's just such a lie to mm-hmm. pretend that they're, oh, we're the reasonable ones here. <laughs> These attorney generals are suing little old Facebook and Instagram for all of the addictive practices. Boo hoo. Like, honestly, cry me a river. These giant, <laughs> massive companies that make so much money over uh, by getting users of all ages addicted to their services. You're going to talk more about this. So, so in fact, can we transition to that, Grace? Yes. Some people don't probably understand that social media is extremely addictive. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, you know, it really is very addictive, and especially for our kids, for America's children. I mean, just this past May, the U.S. Surgeon General actually issued an advisory announcing a youth mental health crisis. Um, And studies, Moses, show that using social media for more than three hours a day, which most youth do that, unfortunately, can actually double the risk of depression and anxiety for youth that are aged about 12 to 15. Now, that's a huge jump, doubling the risk of depression. You think if that was the case with any kind of food that kids wouldn't be allowed to eat it, but somehow they're allowed to do it because it's on their phone. How does that make sense? And I mean, right. Moses, in 2021, that age group used social media for an average of 3.5 hours a day. Now, that was during COVID when everything spiked, of course. But uh, I'd be surprised if social media usage has really gone down much because once you're addicted, and we'll see why it's so addictive in a minute, but once you're addicted, that addiction doesn't just go away. Um, you know, since since the pandemic, the the depression among youths in our country and anxiety has has totally just doubled. And, you know, the young the number of teens who have reported feeling hopeless or lack of in, lack of interest in just regular activities um, for extended periods has risen by more than 10 percent just in the last few years, which is crazy. Um, and, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it is about Instagram, again, created by Menta. Meta, excuse me, what it is about Instagram that really is so addictive. We've talked about social media on this podcast before. We've talked about the dopamine hits, but Instagram actually features um, an algorithmic recommendation system, which creates an endless loop. Do you hear me guys? An endless loop of specifically targeted content for young people. Um, So it's never ending. You can never get to the end of your feed. Now, this wasn't always the case. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you would get to the end of your feed on Instagram. It would say, you have no new posts. You'd get to the end of it, and it wasn't that hard to get to the end of it. But now you can go on Instagram and you can sit on the For You page for hours endlessly because it is designed to be an endless loop. Now, these attorney generals, um, all 41 of them, or all 42 of them, I should say, have uh, claimed that these features encourage kids to, quote, just keep scrolling, falling deeper into the internet rabbit hole crafted perfectly for them. Now, the actual, actually the inventor of the endless scrolling, her name is Aza Raskin, actually might be a boy, might be a girl, I don't know, told BBC that the function was designed to be addictive. 
obviously it was endless scrolling literally that sounds like an addiction problem to me that's horrible and they're encouraging teens to be on this they're encouraging them um so let's let's pump this back to allison um because now you guys are very aware of the addictive nature not of just social media but of instagram specifically um let's talk about allison's comments on here because we do want to give credit where credit is due even though like moses has pointed out we disagree with him on many things Um, Ellison says that Meta marketed their apps as safe for young users despite this addictive aspect and even actively targeted them right on. Absolutely correct. He says, quote, Meta's efforts to addict our young people and sacrifice their well-being for engagement is disgraceful, uh, predatory and illegal. That is so true. I'm very glad for him standing up to that. Now, um, while we commend him for jumping on board with this, absolutely, we're very grateful. We can't give him all the credit here um, because it wasn't his original idea. The broader lawsuit was actually filed by a bipartisan coalition of 33 state attorney generals in California's federal court. Now, that's awesome. Bipartisan. We love to hear bipartisan um, lawsuits. Now, that lawsuit uh, also claims that the company shares data about children under 13 without their parents' consent and is in violation of federal privacy laws. Uh, so this idea originally, uh, you know, originating with 33 other state attorney generals and filed in California was a great uh, stepping stone for Ellison to jump onto. And I'm just so grateful that he did. Um, it's good to, you know, find common ground where we can, even if common ground can be slim when it comes to our attorney general. Moses, do you have any closing thoughts on this story? Yeah, I think, you know, as you're as you're saying this, Grace, my thought is like, this is one of those rare you, you said this is bipartisan, and of course it is, 40, 42 states. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wonder about the eight attorneys general who aren't involved in this. What's their problem? So true. <laughs> but like this is one of those increasingly rare opportunities where the parties can actually do something good that they agree on. There's plenty of stuff that they agree on that isn't that great, <laughs> debatably, like just increasing the federal debt ceiling, for example. Both parties are always ready to do that. Uh, with some exceptions, but protecting kids on the internet surprisingly is actually uh, both here in Minnesota and nationally a place where Democrats and Republicans are willing to work together and have some of the same ideas. Sometimes there's some some real daylight on how they want to go about doing this, but holding these companies to account is something that Republicans have been wary to do and sometimes Democrats have been wary to do because sometimes these big corporations are donating to politicians of both parties. And so it's so good to see, as you say, politicians of both parties uh, jumping on this idea and holding social media companies to account. Of course, this doesn't go far enough. The idea of infinite scrolling mm-hmm. is not just on meta, right? It's uh, it's on um, it's on other things, uh, mm-hmm. most notably TikTok, uh, uh, YouTube, which is a Google product. So there are so many other platforms that use this technology and other technologies like privacy concerns. So um, I think that that's all I have to say on that. I just think more power to more power to them. I, I want to see the government be more engaged, not less engaged to protect kids on the Internet. 
So um, now let's get to our main story. This just happened yesterday as we are filming this, and it was a huge surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, U.S. Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana was elected as the uh, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. And it is crazy because as late as about noon yesterday, the candidate was Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota, and mm-hmm. it looked really bad. He, was, he had something like 20 Republicans who said they weren't going to vote for him. But that changed really quickly. And by 4 p.m., 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon, central time, I got a text alert that uh, this representative who I had uh, heard about a little bit, heard heard that he was a great guy, certainly had not heard that he was in contention to be the Speaker of the House. Not only that, but you remember, Grace, back in January, how uh, Representative McCarthy needed 15 or 16 votes on the floor of the House to be elected mm-hmm. as uh, a speaker because the Republicans have only a 10 vote majority, something like that. So he needed almost every Republican to vote for him uh, to beat the, the Democratic um, candidate, um, Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when uh, Representative Matt Gates um, challenged uh, McCarthy and basically they had a uh, a uh, I don't know what you call it a, they butted heads over various things they they hate each other and Matt Gates and his allies were successful in declaring the chair of the speaker vacant so McCarthy's gone and then we heard about various candidates who were supposed to replace um, McCarthy and and I'm not even remembering all of them the only one that went to the floor I think was Representative Steve Jordan of Ohio. Um, I think I'm getting his Jim Jordan, excuse me, representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. And he's a he's a well-known conservative on Capitol Hill. He's a good guy. I have nothing against him. But but House Republicans, many of them have grudges against him. Okay. And that's this, and the same goes for McCarthy, which is why he was uh his uh, he was gone. And it also went for Representative Emmer from Minnesota, who was the next candidate uh chosen by the caucus. He had at least 20 votes against him. So he knew, in other words, that he couldn't take that to the floor and win. And then, you know, I still don't we we don't know what happened behind closed doors. Um I, I've heard people say that this is kind of a Maybe this is a God thing for Representative Johnson to be elected as majority leader and or for, as Speaker of the House. And so I wonder, Grace, if you could unpack who is Representative Mike Johnson? Mm-hmm. Why is it so cool that he was elected as Speaker of the House? Yeah, absolutely. He is, so he is actually the son of a firefighter, which is cool. And he, uh, according to his congressional biography page, he is, quote, a dedicated husband and father of four and an attorney who has devoted his life and career to fighting for the fundamental freedoms and traditional values that have always been a priority to the people of Louisiana. Again, because he uh, hails from Louisiana. And before he joined public office, he actually worked as a constitutional law attorney. Very awesome. Um, When he actually was elected, he tweeted out, uh, quote, it is the honor of a lifetime to have been elected the 56th Speaker of the House. As Speaker, I will ensure the House delivers results and inspires change for the American people. We will restore trust in this body. We will advance a comprehensive conservative policy agenda, combat the harmful policies of the Biden administration and support our allies allies abroad. And we will restore sanity to a government desperately in need of it. 
let's get back to work. Now, I really Amen. like what he says there because a lot of like the first part of a statement, really anyone could say Democrat or Republican, but then he, or I should say even just progressive, a progressive person could even say that of, you know, I'm honored, I'm ready to deliver results. But he says that he's going to advance a comprehensive conservative policy agenda, which we are so excited about here at Minnesota Family Council. Um, we're not only just excited about what he's saying he will do, we're excited about, you know, his record in the past of being a strong pro-life champion. Um, let me dive more into that. He was actually born to an unwed 17-year-old mom a year before Roe was decided. And he says that this is the foundation for his pro-life position, which is just awesome. I mean, I'm so That's glad awesome. that, yeah, I'm so glad that, you know, his mom chose life. That's just a beautiful testimony. And, uh, you know, there's no surprise that progressives are very unhappy with his nomination. Um, that's actually probably a good thing that they're unhappy because, you know, if they were happy about the nominee, then we probably, we, the audience, Moses, you and I and our audience would not probably be happy. Um, now, a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spokesman said in a statement that electing Johnson as a speaker would represent how the GOP conference has, quote, completely given in to the most extreme fringes of their party, which I think is so funny because basically what it means is that, you know, Johnson is a solid Christian who not only believes in Jesus, but actually lives his faith to borrow, you know, a quote from Lankford just generically about how Christians need to live their faith. Um, that's really what we see with Johnson and uh, which I should say speaker Johnson now. Um, that's what we see. And that's what makes progressives scared. They're scared when Christians actually live their faith and they think that's extreme, an extreme fringe of the party. Actually, that's just being a Christian. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So those are my thoughts there. Moses, I'm interested to, to see kind of what you think about what this means for our pro-life pro-family movement um you know since this is such a major win for us absolutely so you know i can't say this definitively but you could probably make a case that um that's uh, in fact and people are making this case uh so a matthew green and a historian who's written a book on uh uh, the history of speakers of the house has said that um, there hasn't been a, uh, a a speaker as conservative as Speaker Johnson in eighty years. Wow! And that includes people like uh, Speaker Boehner, Speaker Ryan, Speaker Gingrich, who was you know an icon of conservatism. But in some ways, uh, notably on the family values front, Speaker Gingrich was not the strongest uh, candidate. And I just want to read a quote that I saw from uh, a hearing that um, uh, that Speaker Johnson held recently. Um, and it was, let me pull this up. So he recently led a hearing on, um, on making sure that kids are safe from so-called gender-affirming care. And he had an opening statement, which when I read it, I was like, wow, this guy is extremely smart and articulate, and he's putting his finger right on the nail. Uh, Sex isn't something you are assigned at birth. It is a prenatal development that occurs when every unborn child is in its mother's womb. Wow. You can't surgically free yourself or someone else from this fact of life. Today, nearly one in four high school students identifies as LGBTQ, 
whether it's by scalpel or by social coercion from teachers, professors, administrators, and left-wing media, it's an attempt to transition the young people of our country. Something has gone terribly wrong. And that is so accurate. He is pointing to something we've discussed in this podcast many times, won't belabor the point, but we've talked, Grace, many times about how there is a social contagion Mm -hmm. that is attempting to tell young kids that they can do something which is impossible, namely to change their sex. Mm -hmm. And as he says, it's not your sex assigned at birth. It is a prenatal development that occurs at the moment when the egg and sperm fuse to create the zygote. That is the moment at which the, the sex the chromosomal sex of that individual person is decided, right? So it is, it goes back to the, you know, at at the earliest possible moment of conception, right? Uh, And so he, he is willing to stand up for biological sex. He's willing to stand up for life. He's one of the most pro-life members of the U.S. House. And now he's in charge, okay? It's hard to overstate how important that Mm -hmm. is. Not only is he in charge of the U.S. House of Representatives, arguably the most powerful legislative body in the entire world, but he is second in line for the presidency if something, God forbid, should happen to President Biden and Vice President Harris. Now, uh, I think it's so clear the contrast between him and former speakers. Now, the, the difficulty often for conservatives is to turn their values into an ability to actually bring about results. So he needs to now be able to work with Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate to be able to work with President Biden. Uh, They're members of the other party who are ideologically a million miles away from him. But he has to work with them. He has to work with the moderates as well as the hardliners in his own party, the uh, moderates and hardliners in the Democratic Party. He has to work with them so that the government can function. But he also has to stand strong on his principles, and he has to bring pro-life, pro-family to the left. Uh, legislation to the floor. And ideally, he needs to get that legislation passed and sent to to the Senate and sent to President Biden's desk. That's how an effective leader leads, is is winning over your opponents. And uh, I appreciate Grace reading that um, Representative Johnson has started something called the Honor and Civility Caucus uh, Mm -hmm. within the U.S. House. He's, he has said that um, our political opponents, uh, let me find the quote here, our political rivals in Congress are not our enemies. Hmm. And I really love to hear elected leaders um, saying things like that mm-hmm. uh, because we, we hear so often uh, there's just the hatred between both sides of the aisle, whereas, you know, our 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 legislative institutions, the Senate and the, and the House of Representatives, are built on a spirit of collegiality, of needing to work together with people you disagree with, even while standing firm on your principles. Absolutely. And I just feel that if anyone can do that, then Speaker Johnson can do that. So I'm just so excited about this. I, I think we, I think we can say for sure that we can thank God for this. Uh, mm-hmm. We, this is so much better of an outcome than we could have anticipated, right? A right, huge Grace. win. Yes, we're so grateful. Now, as we you know take this episode in for a landing, Moses, I do want to ask you what you're reading this week. Yeah, so I think I said uh, last week that I was reading Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas mm-hmm. Hardy. I finished that. It was good. I'd give it four stars out of five. I'm glad that it wasn't um, as tragic as uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which is the other book by Hardy that I had read. Absolutely just will... It just 
kill you with an emotional knife of sadness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, Far From the Madding Crowd was good. I wouldn't say it was amazing top novels of all time, but really memorable, really well well depicted. And now I'm just reading another of my Scottish murder mystery novels, um, uh, which is okay, but nothing amazing. And I'm kind of slowing down on that. So I really need to get back into reading instead of, frankly, Grace, sometimes I get tired in the evenings and I'm just scrolling through YouTube shorts. It's that, it's that, that it is that infinite cycle. scroll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And it, like, I'm an adult. I'm in control of my digital habits, mm-hmm. right? And I also, I actually... Uh, grew up before infinite scrolling was a thing. So I didn't have that during my formative years. Uh, And yet I'm still, as a 32-year-old adult, spending too much time on my phone because of features like that. And, uh, you know, so to take it back to that issue for a moment, it is an issue for everyone, not just kids, because spending too much time on your phone hurts your relationships, hurts your productivity, hurts almost every aspect of your life. Um, But that is getting off topic. We'll talk about that another day. If you you need to talk to anyone, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. I'm dead. Thank you. Okay. I, no. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna. I'm sorry, but I'm gonna bet that I spend less time on my phone than you. I'm sure that's there, true. I said it. Although, I if you talk, we're talking about personal phone. I feel like I spend. I probably less personal. I probably spend less personal time on my phone than you. Um, but okay, I Grace. Spend are more you willing? Are you willing right now? I oh, I actually don't have my phone on me. But are I you? Don't have my do phone. you have screen time? Do you have screen time turned on? I am not sure. It's downstairs. <laughs> okay. But we can, let's compare uh, does notes it, next Does it send episode. you does it right, but does it send you the report saying how how much time you spend per day? It does not send me that report, but I should turn okay. it on. I'm willing to compare notes next next week, Moses. Yeah. We we should we should come back to that because I think mm-hmm. phone use is something that we should talk about more. We should. But let's let's bring this in for a landing. What are you reading this week, Grace? Yeah, Moses, I just finished a book called Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it's actually the first, uh, you know, it's a huge, it's a biography about her life. It's the first one about her entire life. Um, You know, she published her own autobiography, which only covered part of her life. And it was really interesting. Uh, It made some really interesting points. It, uh, you know, talked about, it it set the record straight on the ghostwriting charges that, you know, she's had with her little, Laura has had with her little house books. Um, Those have swirled around the books. Some people have thought that her daughter Rose wrote the books. Um, It also discussed, you know, how it's really actually hard for uh, small scale farmers to actually make a profit off of their land. Usually small scale farmers have to go and work one or two jobs outside their farm. In addition, it also just talked about, you know, her life, of course. And it was really fascinating. It was really interesting. I think it was like 500-something pages long. It was really long, but wow. really interesting. And I've always just loved Laura Ingalls Wilder, loved her books. And it, it you know, put a really realistic spin on it that um, there are some things in the books that are, you know, th- it's true, but it's mixed with a little bit of fiction. It's based on reality, but there are some things that are slightly altered to make it more appealing for a child, which makes sense since it's ch- a children's work. Um, but it, in reality, her life was actually a lot harder than it seems in her children's books, which makes sense. Um, so that was just a fascinating book, honestly, just f- especially from a historical perspective. So really enjoyed that. That's great. I, I love Laura Ingalls Wilder. Talk about a homegrown hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born just about, I don't know, two hours by car from where we're filming this um, yeah. this episode. I think it was I've been near there. the cross. Fun story. Yeah, I, I went on a... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I won a Laura Ingalls lookalike contest when I was like 12 years old, actually, in Walnut Grove. No way. Mm-hmm. It was fun. That's crazy. That's awesome. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I have that book on my list now as well. Grace, as we as we do every week, can you close us with a verse from God's word? Yes, this comes from Psalm 148. It says, Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for all the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Now, I just love that reminder. Um, yes, this psalm is talking about Israel, but it's also very applicable to us today. And I think especially what just recently happened with our new speaker of the house, you know, a ruler of our nation is praising the Lord. And that is just a beautiful thing, especially when godly uh, elected officials can sometimes seem rare, especially on the national scale. Um, I'm just so grateful that, you know, he is praising the name of the Lord and, you know, that will hopefully lead even more Americans and more Minnesotans to together praise his name. Um, so I just, I love that as a reminder for the end of our podcast this week. Make sure you guys tune in next week. Uh, we have new episodes every single Friday and we always cover the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. We'll see you next week so you can get the facts and stand for truth. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Music